Welcome to the Help for Hip Dysplasia podcast. I'm your host, Laura Rotford, a physiotherapist, Pilates instructor, and fellow hippie. We're here to talk all things hip dysplasia, to build a community, to support and guide each other through the ups and the downs. If you like the podcast, please share it and rate it. It does help others to find it too. And if you have any feedback or questions, they're always welcome. Email me at laura at helpforhipdysplasia.com. That's it for now. Let's get started with the show. Welcome to the Help for Hip Dysplasia podcast. We have with us today Sarah Enesenti from over in the US. Hi, Sarah. Hello. It's great to have you with us. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to come and speak to us and share your story. Um, So you're obviously over in the US, so it's about midday there for you? That is correct. Yep, it's around lunchtime. I hope it's a nicer day over here over there than it is over here it's been absolutely great and miserable and um it's been pitch black for about three or four hours now so uh, it's not quite so nice over here how is it over there uh where i am we have some snow and it's kind of cloudy here we haven't had sun for the past couple of days at least you've had some snow though that's awesome I do want to ask a little bit about the backstory of it. So um, from my bit of reading that I've been able to to do on you so far, we've talked about the fact that you struggled to get your diagnosis for eight years. So would you mind just talking us a little bit through your journey from sort of where you were at the start to kind of where you are now? Sure. Um, Well, it started out, um, I was in college when I initially started having hip pain. And that was when I was working out pretty frequently. I was a gymnast and a track athlete in the past. So I had been doing a lot of working out at that time and had a little bit of hip and back pain and thought it was just a pulled muscle. Um, So then I looked into um, maybe kind of dialing back my workouts, kind of um, trying to figure out did I injure myself working out or is this some, Is this more? So then after that, I started to have trouble um, walking to class in college or sitting um, at my desk or um, in classrooms. I was struggling to sit comfortably. Um, and then eventually my sleep was starting to bother me. And this was all um, the hip pain that I was having. And so at that point, I was like, this isn't normal. I don't think this is normal. I need to go figure out what this is. So initially, I, um, a couple years into college, so that was probably my sophomore year of college when I first had pain. And then about, I would say probably a year later, I looked into seeing a, I believe it was an just an orthopedic surgeon, just a general orthopedic surgeon, and they requested um, x-rays and MRIs. So I did that, and they couldn't really find much on there. They didn't really see anything, or they didn't find anything in the x-rays. So then we looked deeper into the MRI, and then they started looking at, okay, you have a little bit of uh, piriformis syndrome, which I didn't know what that was initially um, because I had issues with pain in my lower back as well. And so they tried to treat the piriformis syndrome with um, 
um, an injection, like a muscle relaxer, and that I did not get any relief with. So, so I just want to interject just to give um, anybody that's listening, if they don't know what piriformis syndrome is, um, just the there's a muscle in your hip around the back in your bottom, deep in your bottom muscles called your piriformis, and it sits uh, over your sciatic nerve. So this can obviously give you pain that goes up the nerve or down the nerve um, or radiate you know quite far out around the the bum muscles around into the hip it can follow any of the distribution of the sciatic nerve so it can be really really painful and in a small percentage of the population actually the sciatic nerve runs through the piriformis in a few people um so yeah that can be super super painful um I'm quite interested that they went straight for the injection did they give you any um like rehab or mobility work, stretches, strengthening to support the hip, anything first, or did they dive straight in with the injection? Um, they did a little bit of stretching. I did uh, physical therapy, I want to say, for a good three months, I guess, prior to that. And then I got the injection because I wasn't noticing any change. Um, and then after the injection, without any change, then they had me see a chiropractor. Um, so to kind of catch everybody up, I saw one doctor, um, an orthopedic surgeon, and then I actually went and saw another doctor who um, was, I believe, another orthopedic surgeon, but a little bit more focused, um, focused on the hip, but not, not too much, um, because they still didn't know what was causing my hip pain. Um, and that's what led to the, the exercises and the injection. And then after that, um, then I saw a chiropractor um, and they noticed that my SI joint um, was like hypermobile is what they discovered. So they would correct me and then it would not be correct by the time I went back and they were you know they were like what's causing this and for me I was just kind of living my normal life trying to avoid things that hurt so I wasn't doing anything strenuous or working out to trigger it so after the chiropractor probably I think I had about seven or eight visits I was like I'm not getting any relief but I was, I was willing to be patient and see if it would, uh, you know, slowly make progress and it didn't. And so then after that, um, about that time, I was about done with college. So I uh, headed back home um, and then saw another doctor. So at this point, I had graduated college and I was searching for a full-time job and so we were looking into different doctors, basically in a different area of Wisconsin. And so then I went and saw um, a hip specialist and they eventually saw some issues within, well, they were keeping an eye on my labrum. They thought maybe my labrum was the issue. And so they ordered another x-ray and another set of MRIs. I believe in total, I probably had three or four sets of x-rays and two MRIs. And it, took, it still took a very long time for them to catch it. So this particular surgeon um, I saw, he, 
he looked into the the labrum, then he was looking into some other uh, muscular issues, you know, like tendonitis, um, because I was getting pain in, um, in the like inner side of my knee, I was having lower back pain, I was having the SI joint pain. Um, I also had some bursitis pain. And so um, the bursa that's on the outside of your hip, I talked to this particular doctor about that. And so they thought that was the uh, majority of my pain. So then with that doctor, this I believe was a sports medicine doctor. And so she thought maybe another injection would help uh, to calm down the bursa, um, gave me a couple of exercises to kind of stretch out uh, my IT band on the outside and outside of my hip to see if that would help. Um, I believe that was a cortisone injection and I did not receive any relief from that either. Um, so then to move forward, they were like, okay, the pain is coming from somewhere else. So then they did another diagnostic injection um, directly into my hip joint. So that was um, like a, I believe it was ultrasound or x-ray guided injection. Yep. And that was kind of painful. That wasn't super awesome to <laughs> experience, but it did get to the base of the problem, which was great because the injection that they gave me did give me about a day of relief, which was great. It was, you know, for such a long time, I didn't have relief. So I noticed it immediately. I slept better that night and I was able to move around better that day. And then I immediately woke up the next day and noticed I'm back in the same pain I was in before. So when I saw this sports medicine doctor, she referred me um, to another hip specialist. And this hip specialist, <laughs> this hip specialist, oh my goodness. I came in and I was like, I have done all sorts of things. I, I have done the physical therapy. I have done the injections. I have done stretching. I, I like, I don't know what's wrong, but there's definitely something going on. And I explained that I had that injection into my hip joint and that I had relief. And he ultimately was like, I need some x-rays but I think I know what you have. And, <laughs> and at that point, I wasn't convinced. I had heard so many other things. At that point, I was like, it's just gonna be something else that we don't have an answer to. And so once we got the x-rays back, he came into the room and he was like, I know what you have. And I guess I was, I, I, my shoulders relaxed. I was able to breathe and he's like, you have hip dysplasia. And I was like, okay, what's that? Like, what does that mean? And did my gymnastics that I had done in the past cause that? That was the first thing that thought, you know, popped into my head. And he was like, yep, you have hip dysplasia. He showed the angles that my hips were at and showed that I have bilateral hip dysplasia. And that my right side um, structurally was worse than the left, but I was having more pain in the left. 
So this entire journey of seeing different doctors was all based off of my left side hip pain and not any in my right. Um, but he goes, you know, it's hip dysplasia, but I can't help you. And I was like, okay, not like, he's like, I know what surgery you need to have and I don't do it. How did that make you feel when he said, I know what it is, but I can't help you. <laughs> it was, it was exciting to know what it was and that all the pain I was in wasn't in my head. I wasn't crazy, <laughs> um, but it was kind of another discouraging point to go, okay, well, what's the next step then? Is, is this ever going to go away or am I going to have to live with this for the rest of my life? Um, so when I was, when I kind of understood what was, what he had shown me, so like the different angles and kind of got a grip on what hip dysplasia was, he was like, you need something called a periacetabular osteotomy, which is a PAO. And at that point, you know, I never knew what that was. I had not done any research. And he was like, you know, it's a pretty invasive surgery. Um, I would recommend that you do your research. Um, and he recommended some surgeons for me that did do it. Um, but it wasn't anybody in, in the town that I live in, in Wisconsin which made it more challenging because then I had to deal with um, insurance issues that happened kind of after that. So, yeah, you're not the first person that's had uh, insurance issues on this podcast. I think it's a bit of a recurring theme um, over in the States that people just have these horrible, horrible journeys having to go through multiple different companies, having to justify everything that they're going for, all the form filling. What, what was your experience of, of your journey with the insurance people? Um, well, well, the surgeon I had to see, um, they actually recommended me to Mayo Clinic in which I was kind of in awe that I needed to go to Mayo Clinic because um, Mayo Clinic in the US is a, a very big hospital and very specialized things can happen there and I didn't realize how um, how major this surgery was and how many surgeons actually in the United States do it because there's a very small uh, list of surgeons that do it. So then when we decided on going to Mayo Clinic, then the next step was um, getting a referral from my surgeon that was, or that uh, my hip specialist in Wisconsin had to refer me um, to Mayo Clinic. And then I had to have an, uh, a consultation and I had to call the insurance company about that consultation um, being covered. And that was taken care of just fine. And that was easy. So I went and saw the surgeon and then things were fine. And then when we discussed uh, later on, when we discussed the surgery, that's where things started to get complicated. Um, I had to file multiple uh, prior authorizations to get the, the blood work done. Um, the blood work done at Mayo Clinic, I had to 
get another authorization for the, the surgery and another authorization regarding the, um, like the imaging that needed to be done. So the x-rays and if they needed to do anything else like that. So that was many, many phone calls back and forth from my doctor's office in Wisconsin to Mayo Clinic, trying to make sure um, information was being processed correctly. Um, and with a lot of the um, paperwork, it just took a long time to get things processed. So things were getting very close to deadlines and I was getting feedback from both places saying, oh, we're only gonna cover this or we're only gonna cover this if you do this here. So the, the major issue I discovered was the blood work. Um, the surgery did end up getting covered uh, but I didn't know until very close to the date of the surgery that it was going to be covered. So I was very stressed about it for a good couple of months. <laughs> so uh, no, the was, <laughs> <laughs> we're both then um, for context for other people um, that can't see what we're doing right now. Like I've got my hands on my head. Like I'm just so stressed even hearing about it and you're doing something similar your end as well. Um, I think if, if one thing that people can get from listening to this is that if you are in the States and you have to go through insurance companies, if you know that it's going to be really time consuming and quite stressful, at least at the minimum, you can know that that's coming right and allow for that rather than it taking you by surprise that, you know, you've got all of this, all of this stuff going back and forwards. Right. I, I kind of initially knew that with it um, being out of my insurance network that I was going to have to jump through some hoops to get it covered, but I didn't realize how long it was going to take and how many phone calls um, I needed to make and how many things I needed to fax to different people and send in the mail and all those things while also trying to do my um, my full-time job. So I'm trying to manage all these phone calls without missing work and just trying to stay comfortable as far as my hip goes because I know um, chronic hip pain isn't just it's not just pain I think it can affect you mentally as well and it's just stressful it's a lot of stress on your body when you're trying to get that figured out um, but kind of going back to the coverage the what my insurance company ended up doing was I needed to get specific blood tests done uh, pre-surgery and some of them they agreed to cover at Mayo Clinic and other ones they did not. So I had to get my blood drawn twice, um, one in network and then other ones not. And the reasoning behind that was because um, this kind of ties into the COVID-19. Um, but I initially was supposed to have surgery in March and due to a couple other health issues and COVID-19, um, the surgeon at Mayo Clinic uh, said, we're not gonna do the surgery. We're not doing any elective surgeries. We're gonna have to reschedule. And so I was very discouraged at that point. Um, so I had some prior authorizations and approvals that were set for March. And so I had to redo some of those because my uh, PAO surgery ended up being in August. 
So I had to wait a few months, refile some paperwork, make some new phone calls. And ultimately in March, there were there was certain blood tests that were covered. And then when it came to scheduling my surgery in August, they were like, oh yeah, you need to have these blood tests done too. And I'm not sure if it was due to COVID or if it was due to, um, they just forgot to send them to me previously. I'm not really sure. Um, but my insurance said, nope, we're only going to cover a certain set of blood tests. And you can get these certain tests done at Mayo Clinic. And there are other ones you have to get done in town. So I had to get my blood drawn twice within probably a week of me getting PAO surgery. But a week before you actually had the surgery? Correct. Wow. Okay. So when... With with all of the work on the insurance stuff, just um, to give people a little bit of time guideline, like you said, you were doing it around a full time job as well. Um, how many weeks worth of phone calls and stuff would you say there were, and how many hours of perhaps paperwork and work with the insurance companies do you think maybe that you had to had to do? Oh, um, I would say I spent. I spent a ton of time on the phone. A lot of my lunch breaks at work were spent, I would say multiple times a week. So at least probably three to four hours a week on the phone, trying to work that out. Um, paperwork was somewhat electronic. So there were certain things that I needed to contact my surgeon um, or my hip specialist in Wisconsin to send to Mayo Clinic. So some of the things I had to kind of jumpstart the process. And so when I was doing that type of stuff, it was me taking the time to check uh, my online medical accounts to see if the information had been sent um, because some doctors wanted things faxed over some doctors wanted things sent electronically and it wasn't the same like some of the paperwork specifically needed to be um, sent over electronically and some of the paperwork I needed to sign or I needed to fill out and so that needed to be faxed which means I needed to take a little bit more time out of my work day or after work so maybe an hour or so after work probably because this process started I would say in February. So there was a lot of paperwork in February and then it kind of relaxed in March. And then it started back up probably in July um, for the actual surgery that I had in August. So I would, I would probably say a lot of time, many hours on the phone, many hours um, after work doing messaging. And I don't think... Um, you know, a lot of the things were in my control, but I always had to jumpstart a lot of the things. So that's what took so long was making sure I could contact those individuals. Yeah, it's so interesting that there's so many different forms of methods that they want different types of paperwork in, right? So, I mean, I don't even know anybody that would have a fax machine. If someone was asking me to fax, I wouldn't even know where to start. So you've got, you know, these proper like old school systems you know with faxing and like letters and then you got you know through to emails and probably just messaging stuff across on different platforms of you know various media or note systems um so yeah that's 
but I think that just gives everybody a really detailed overview of some of the things that they can maybe prep for. And if they know that they've got like a really busy week coming up or they know that their job is really quite stressful, even knowing in advance that you might need to just take a couple of days off here and there to actually allow the time to prep for it to not be quite so stressed um, along the process. How, how did you deal with, with the stress from that? Because obviously so many people have different methods of coping with their stress, but what was your coping mechanism? Um, well, I tend to, uh, I like to use exercise as a stress reliever. So despite having the hip pain, I actually would go for walks, short walks, um, when the weather was warm enough. And I enjoyed walking. Um, I also um, coach gymnastics as well. So that was a, always a good outlet for me. I call that my my fun job because I love working with the kids and it's not something I stress about because I have a background in gymnastics. It wasn't something I had to think really hard about. So I always looked forward to going to that. Um, other things I like to do um, were read some books and take some time to just not be on a screen and not talk to people for a little while. <laughs> And, you know, I love doing that. I love socializing, but sometimes you just need that time to yourself. Absolutely. So that kind of takes us up to having the surgery. And you kind of mentioned um, in the with the insurance stuff about COVID and how that's kind of started creeping into the way that it affected your lead up to that. So let's have a chat now a little bit about um, the surgery, if we may, like, the you know, the week leading up to you going in. Um, and how did, you know, COVID in the world right now change that scenario for your situation? Um, for me, that was, it was a challenging decision because um, when I went and saw the surgeon at Mayo Clinic, his um, initial response to my hip dysplasia was, why don't you try pain management? Um, try that for a little bit. Um, and see if that works. So from the uh, the initial consultation, which was in December of 2019, um, all the way through, I would say February 2020, I was working with uh, pain management um, with different types of medications and things along those lines. We didn't really discuss anything else, but I tried out um, two different types of medications that were supposed to relieve my pain. And so when I had scheduled the surgery for March, I was under the anticipation that I was going to have surgery in March, that I wouldn't be on these medications long. And so I went to my pre-surgical appointment, which I believe was a, a couple days before the PAO surgery. Um, and the dynamic between that consultation and the pre-op appointment was so different. I went to Mayo Clinic in December and then went to Mayo Clinic again um, in August. And Mayo Clinic does a great job. Um, they did a great job screening people for COVID. They, we would walk in the door and they would ask if we had any symptoms. Um, we had to wear a mask the entire time we were there. Um, and so once I got into the office of the um, hip surgeon, he was 
kind of telling me that, you know, with COVID, it's up to you if you want to get this surgery. Like, this, this might put you at a higher risk of getting COVID-19. If I want you to be aware of that. And so getting that specific information that it, you know, could put me at risk of that at that point, I feel like I didn't, I wasn't sure if it was the right decision for me or not. I, I knew how major the surgery was at this point. And I was nervous. I was super nervous. Um, and Mayo Clinic has a lot of different people coming from a lot of different places in the US for sure. And that was kind of intimidating. But I decided to end up following through with it. Um, but the whole um, process of getting the blood tests, um, we had to make sure that I was wearing a mask and that I showed up at the time I was supposed to. They didn't want people in the waiting room. They didn't want people to gather. Um, when it came to the day of the PAO surgery, I had my, um, I brought uh, my parent with me, my father with me, and he was the only visitor that was allowed in the hospital. They did not allow for any other visitors and they asked as soon as we checked in for the surgery who my visitor was going to be. And that was kind of challenging for me because in, you know, in the past, I've had surgeries in the past, not related to hip dysplasia, but you can have people come in and visit and just having people be able to come in and visit you when you're um, experiencing something like this. It was so hard for me to kind of sit in a room and, and not be able to socialize with other people. And I was in the hospital for three days. Um, and all of the nurses, all of the staff that were there were wearing masks. Um, I had to kind of stay in my room. There were, um, I didn't have to wear a mask the entire time I was in my room if I left my room. So for things such as physical therapy and kind of getting some movement in my hip after surgery, uh, they had me put a mask on when I was out in the hallway, but in my own room, they didn't have me wear one, which I wasn't sure if that was supposed to be happening or not. <laughs> um, and then after that, I feel like I kind of watched, like as soon as I was done with the surgery and I got discharged, I just kind of kept an eye out once I went home to see if I would get any COVID symptoms. I mean, that was a huge concern for me because it's, it's it's a big incision that you have and there's there's always a risk of getting some sort of infection or having other complications with surgery. So I definitely uh, quarantined myself at home, um, not because I had COVID symptoms, but because I was recovering and it wasn't a good idea for me to be around other people with um, such a big incision trying to heal and me recovering. So it was interesting. Yeah, absolutely. So when you when you were isolating them, were you doing that with your father as well? Um, yes. So what ended up happening is my father had to um, go back to his job. So I actually had uh, my grandmother stay with me and she was able to take care of me. And she um, 
doesn't get out too much. So we knew she had been isolating herself, you know, just because that's kind of normally what she does. Um, I was a little bit concerned staying with her, though. I didn't, I, you know, if I for some reason had COVID, I didn't want to give it to her. But we, like I said, we kept an eye on it. And neither of us uh, got sick or anything like that. So it ended up working out really well um, for my family. But it, I definitely tried to just stay away from a lot of people for a good, I want to say at least two to three weeks other than my grandmother who was taking care of me. It must have been so nice to have her around to help you and, you know, just feel so supported and have somebody that caring around with you. Yes, she was wonderful. Um, she did everything for me, you know, with this surgery comes a lot of loss of independence and she was very supportive of me and just, you know, celebrated my little victories every day and every week. And that was, that was super helpful. And I really enjoyed being able to spend more time with her. That sounds really special, actually. Amazing. So you obviously came out of the surgery, you came home, but how did you feel after the surgery? So, you know, COVID aside, um, how did you feel when you came around and, you know, you were sitting there in your bed, you'd woken up, how did you feel? After I kind of realized where I was and um, I was in like in my hospital room, I would say a day after I had the surgery, I, I felt better already, even though, you know, your legs still in the process of becoming a numb and, and those types of things. I was like, I already feel different and this feels better. And I couldn't tell for sure if it was, you know, because I was on pain medication or if it was due to me actually feeling better because things were where they were supposed to be. And so once I was able to realize that, you know, the pain kind of stayed away, that was such a relief for me. I was, I was so relieved to know that the decision that I made um, was a good one because it, it was so, I was so nervous when I made the decision and having so much time for PAO surgery, I had so much time to think about scheduling it because you schedule it so far in advance and then you do research and you're able to kind of understand what they're going to do with your hip. Then you're like, you know, is this the right, is this the right decision for me? And because when I talked to my surgeon, he kind of gave me like a 50-50 shot, like this, this can help, but I can't guarantee this is going to help. And so when I had got done with the surgery, it was exciting to know that I was on the, the, the positive end of it, getting relief. Um, it was still quite a recovery. It's, it, it is still a recovery, but I don't regret doing the surgery at all it was definitely a good choice for me. That, that must feel amazing now to look back on it, knowing that, you know, there were obviously a, a few additional risks to consider with COVID, but now having had that experience and having come out the other side, do you feel like it's almost quite reassuring to, to know that you went in, you knew how safety cautious they were being with all their, you know, policies, procedures, and you know, knowing that it's giving you this outcome, does it just feel, oh, I was so justified in making all of those decisions the way that I did? 
Yes. Yeah. And I, when I was doing my research to see which surgeons I wanted to see, that was one thing I thought about with Mayo Clinic is, wow, they are this renowned um, facility and they should know what they're doing. And I bet if anything, they have all sorts of procedures in place and they are on top of um, education and screenings as far as COVID-19. So once I kind of saw that, I felt a lot more comfortable going into the surgery. And, and then after, I was just so thankful in the way they uh, proceeded with um, the way they took care of me in the hospital, that they used every precaution that they could to keep everybody safe. That's absolutely amazing. And that hopefully that will reassure other people because I know there are so many people that have had their surgeries delayed this year, like an absolutely insane amount. Um, and that, you know, for valid reasons, but um, obviously there's a lot of people that are in a lot of pain right now and sitting there waiting and hoping for these surgeries to happen. So again, I hope that this gives them a little bit of reassurance um, of the way that things are being dealt with um, in hospitals, you know, around where you are. So that's awesome to be able to hear about. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, so I also want to know a little bit about how your rehab is going now. So, you know, we know how you felt after the surgery and you said that it felt you know, quite a lot better straight away, but how has that rehab been for you? And, you know, how are you now? Um, well, the first couple of weeks were challenging. Um, I would say the first two weeks were probably the roughest for me. It was trying to navigate um, how to sleep comfortably, um, taking all sorts of different medications that the hospital had me taking, which were helpful, but trying to keep that on schedule. Um, but once I was able to navigate sleeping, I tended to feel better during the day. Um, but sleeping was a challenge because there were certain ways you could sleep and certain ways that were painful to sleep in. Um, could, could you just expand on those a little bit? So which, you know, how did you find the most comfortable position to sleep after your PAO and what things irritated you? And did you have any kind of pillows or special cushions or anything that you used to help you? Oh, I had so many pillows. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I was only able to sleep on my back for probably the first two weeks, which wasn't awful for me because pre-surgery, I wasn't comfortable in any sleeping position. So when I was sleeping on my back, I had a hard time keeping my legs comfortable because I would either have some sort of pain um, in my hip or in my leg based off of the way my leg would sit and for how long it would sit in a specific position. So I had pillows um, on the side, probably on the outside of my foot to prevent my leg from rolling outwards. Um, I had a pillow in between both of my uh, legs to prevent my foot from rolling inwards. And then I had <laughs> another pillow on the base of my foot, so on the bottom of my foot, to kind of prevent me from like pointing my foot because it would just kind of, it would just kind of drop. My foot would kind of drop and that would cause pain in my hip. So I kind of barricaded my foot and my, my leg <laughs> from moving anywhere. And then for a while, I actually ended up putting a pillow underneath my knee as well because that was causing a lot of stress to my hip and in the hospital, which I thought 
um, my surgeon told me not to put a pillow underneath my knee for the first uh, couple of days. And I, cause I was very uncomfortable um, with that in the hospital. And they were like, oh, we can't, we can't put a pillow underneath your knee. And I was kind of like, why? And they never were able to tell me why, but when I had to sleep on my own at home, I ended up put, putting a pillow underneath my knee and that seemed to relieve a lot of my pain. Okay. That, I mean, that's quite interesting that they, they couldn't tell you why. I mean, theoretically, I'm kind of sitting there going through over some reasons in my mind, like physio brain, as to why they would and wouldn't say that. And I've got a few options either way. So I'm going to do a little bit of reading on that and just see if I can then come up with some sort of factual ones rather than just my clinically reasoned ones either way and just confirm um, the thoughts that I'm having in my head before I put that out. So I'll maybe pop that up on social media over the next week or so. But that's um, a quite an interesting point. You know, that's not something that's come up so far. So, uh, yeah, thanks for that. So let's see. You've got one that was barricading your foot from the bottom, one from either side to prevent the roll in and out, one underneath your knee. So that's four already. And that's, we've only got up to the knee. So were there any others? Um, then I just, I believe I only had one that would kind of be up towards my actual hip between um it was more so I wouldn't try and roll over to kind of remind myself not to roll over but I didn't I didn't really touch that one it was just more of um you know if there was anybody that was going to sit next to me or anything like that like don't get too close was kind of what that pillow was for <laughs> so with all of those pillows you were able to sleep fairly comfortably fairly quickly or did it take a while to kind of just get comfortable with those positions? Um, it took a couple days. I would say it probably took three or four days to figure out what worked um, because of the medications I was on. I would get sleepy and I'd try to find a comfortable position, um, but it was hard to stay asleep for long periods of time because I would find one comfortable position, sleep for a couple of hours and then wake up in a lot of pain. And then I'd have to readjust those pillows because sometimes the pillows had moved. So I guess the challenge I had was maybe I just moved around too much in my sleep and needed something to kind of hold it there in place. And I had never really found anything except when I would be like taking naps on the couch um, that I was able to kind of barricade uh, the pillows against the backside of the couch. But I always got a little nervous that I was gonna slide off the couch a little bit. <laughs> I see so many people that actually sleep on armchairs um, after, you know, for the first few weeks after surgery because it's the only way that they can get comfortable. Um, so yeah, I, uh, I definitely hear those, hear those troubles that you're having and appreciate those. Um, so how long was it after you got home that you were really still starting to get up and ready with your rehab? Um, the first four weeks, I was non-weight bearing. And, or toe touch weight bearing, that's what I should say. Um, and they only had me doing, um, they had me doing ankle pumps laying down and they had me doing, I can't remember the technical term for them, but you'd squeeze your, your quad muscle to kind of straighten your knee. Mm -hmm. um, and that was about it for four weeks. They had me do I think two weeks after surgery, they had me when I was sitting up, I could like straighten my leg from a sitting position and then lower it back down to the floor and do some 
heel slides where I'm sliding my heel kind of close to my bottom and then sliding it back out kind of as far as I could go, but nothing, nothing strenuous, nothing um, quick. It, it was supposed to be slow and I was supposed to do it to kind of keep the blood flowing and um, to kind of prevent those blood clots too and to try and get up and move around, <laughs> which is hard when your hip is broken in three pieces. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> so where, they're the initial stages. Where are you now with your rehab? Because it was August, right? So, and we're in the beginning of January. So yeah, you mean maybe four or five months down the road. Yes. Yeah. Um, initially, my surgeon did not, he never said I had to do physical therapy, which surprised me. He recommended exercises and specific exercises and different types of physical activity, such as um, after four weeks, I could start water walking. I could start um, using a stationary bike, um, swimming. I could start doing those activities. Um, and in the meantime, I'm trying to wean off of crutches at that point. And so after kind of that point, I waited till about 10 weeks and I looked into physical therapy myself because I felt as though my progress as far as weaning off the crutches and my um, pain that I was still in, um, I knew it was strength-based and I think I know that because of my gymnastics background. So I knew there was, I needed to work on my strength and that would help. And after communication with my surgeon at Mayo Clinic, um, I was um, able to get some physical therapy scheduled. And so I started physical therapy uh, once a week in November, the first week of November. And I've been going once a week up until this past week, actually, I've been going once a week. So I've been in PT since November. So November, December, January, that's a good chunk of time in PT. And I've been making progress, which is great. I've had a lot of progress. Um, so now I'm out at four months. I'm four months post-op, which feels crazy to think about because those first couple of weeks, um, you just feel like you can't do anything and recovery is challenging and you got to take those little victories. One of the biggest things I've noticed is you got to not give yourself such a hard time about not being able to do things and celebrate those little things that you are able to do, whether it's, you know, taking 10 steps to go from one room to another or to be able to shower by yourself like those are those are little celebrations. And I still feel like I'm having those. <laughs> you said um, when you were, when your um, grandmother was living with you, and um, you said that you celebrated the little victories. How do you, how did you celebrate? Was it kind of like a high five or a woohoo? Or how, how did you celebrate? Um, it, it was a lot of that. It was, you know, good job. You were able to get your shoes on and things like that. Uh, but she also, which we had a lot of fun with, um, I was using a walker for the first four weeks. So what we would do is every time I did something that I hadn't been able to do before, we would actually put star stickers on the walker every time I did something. <laughs> and I loved it, you know, so much motivation. <laughs> it's like going back to uh, like first school, isn't it? You know, where you get like your stickers on your charts for doing a good job. <laughs> it's brilliant. Exactly. 
<laughs> and I did, we laughed about it. We laughed about it, but it was, it was, uh, it was a good reminder for me to see those stickers and go, yeah, I did do that. There's a reason that those things work with kids, right? It's really great to have those little celebrations and perhaps as adults, we should do a little bit more of that. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. So knowing where you are now, you know, you're, you're doing physical therapy still, like you said, um, but it did intrigue me when you said that they said they didn't mention about you having any after the initial kind of first four weeks. So knowing what you know now and the experience of having had the physiotherapy for, you know, this four months, how do you feel that you would be in your situation now if you hadn't had that continuation of, of physio? I think if I wouldn't have chosen to do physical therapy and I, I kind of advocated for myself at that point, um, I think my recovery honestly would have taken longer than it currently is. I think I already took quite a long time to get off of crutches um, due to other things that kind of flared up after surgery. And I discovered a lot of the pain that I was having after surgery was just related to muscle weakness for the most part. And I had a lot of muscle weakness um, without the physical therapy. And there were certain things I was struggling with. Like I was still, I believe at 10 weeks, I was still struggling to get dressed. I was still struggling um, to be able to pick things up and get into vehicles. Um, those things were all really challenging and they've gotten better. So those kind of um, lifestyle things, that's what kind of made me recognize that I really needed to do the PT because if I hadn't, I would still be struggling with those everyday things. So I, I would definitely recommend it. Um, if your surgeon doesn't recommend it, I think you know your body the best and you should advocate for yourself as much as you can. And if you're not able to do physical therapy to be aware of what um, exercises maybe you could do, especially with um, COVID, I wasn't sure if I was actually gonna be able to do physical therapy. That was the other challenge. I wasn't sure if I was gonna be able to go into an office and work on those exercises. I didn't know if it was going to be a virtual type of situation where I would have to do the PT at home or if I was able to come into the office and the PT I was able to do, thankfully I was able to do it um, in person. Um, but I had to wear a mask and I still have to wear a mask. Um, and they do a great job cleaning the facility um, because I thought if I can't get into PT, maybe I could find a, a like a gym membership and I could do some of my workouts there, but I got a little nervous about that. I was like, that's a place where a bunch of people can gather. I just don't think that's a good idea for me. So when I was able to get into PT, I felt that that was a safer op option for me. Brilliant. It sounds like you've had some really good experiences post-surgery um, and after, you know, you got to this stage, which is so lovely to hear considering, you know, the eight years of struggle that you had you know, in the lead up to that. So I'm so pleased that now, you know, you are having such a positive experience in comparison. Um, now you did mention that your diagnosis was for bilateral hip dysplasia. Um, so obviously you've had the left side done now. Is there a plan to do the right side? Currently there isn't. Um, 
but it's always sitting in the back of my mind <laughs> as watch out for the symptoms, you know what they are, and be careful of what you're doing because I have had a little bit of pain in my right side in the exact same spot I had on my left, which for me, that was kind of like a red flag saying, keep an eye on this, see what else triggers this type of pain. And then most recently, actually this past week, I started having some pain um, in the lower part of my leg. So like my Achilles. Um, and I had that when I had uh, pain on my left side too. Um, I don't know if everybody experiences this, but I noticed with my hip dysplasia, it affected almost like the lower half of my body. I would have knee pain, I would have ankle pain and Achilles pain and hip pain. Like the pain was everywhere. And I'm kind of starting to see those on my right side, but nothing's currently scheduled. But I did mention to my surgeon at Mayo Clinic that I was having a little bit of pain when I saw him on my left side. And he actually said that they will only treat um, PAO surgery or they suggest the PAO surgeries um, to resolve symptoms. Um, so if you're not having much pain, they didn't recommend the PAO surgery, even though structurally my right side is um, worse than my left. Yeah, you mentioned that. So are you right-handed? Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe that's why, because if you're right side dominant, you're stronger on that side, that even if your symptoms are worse, if you are right side dominant and you do have more support and stability around that hip to be able to, to give it that support, then it's not having to put that extra pressure on things like the labrum and it's not affecting the inflammation in the joint so much. So you'll probably find that that's why you're, you're not having the symptoms so much that side and why the left side was more symptomatic first because that was the weaker side so yeah you know the fact that you're doing all the the physiotherapy stuff and you're keeping yourself strong on both sides will do you so many favors i i really really appreciate you coming on to tell your story and you know if that second surgery does happen in the future i i really believe that you will deal with it so so well i think you've you know, from what you've said to me, you've learned so much on this journey so far um, to be able to deal with that again, if you even need it. Um, but your story has just been so useful and inspiring. And I think it will be so useful to other people um, that might be going through a sim similar situation. So I can't thank you enough for coming on today and sharing your story. Thank you so much for having me. This is awesome. <laughs> Well, it's it's people like you that really help other people in ways that you don't even understand, you know, so to have that support and just to hear other people's stories, it just makes people feel like they're not alone going through this. Um, and, you know, people do find that so useful. So thank you so much again for taking the time out of your day to come. So Absolutely. We'll for today um, and uh, we'll be doing a few more interviews over the next couple of weeks um, so they will be coming out um, hopefully a few more in January so stay tuned keep your ears open for the next ones coming up um, and yeah we'll speak to you again really soon. Thank you so much for listening we'll be back again next week with another inspiring and incredible guest see you soon.